So again, my name is Kevin Griffin, and um, I want to talk a little bit about why, first of all, start by talking a little bit about why I'm interested in uh, Buddhism and the 12 steps as a, as a topic. Um, you know, if you're into Buddhism, you know there's all these lists already, the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths and the Five This and the Three That. It's like, we need another list. 12 steps? I mean, jeez. Um, and I, I don't mean to burden you with another list. Um, but I, uh, when I started to teach uh, meditation and dharma uh, around 1996, I found that many times my own experience in 12-step programs would uh, kind of slip out intentionally or unintentionally, and many times people would come up afterwards and say, oh, I'd like to hear more about that, um, or thank you for talking about that. Um, so I started to see that I wasn't the only alcoholic Buddhist out there. Uh, I uh, actually started to practice Buddhist meditation five years before I got sober. I started to practice in 1980. and. Um, you know, it, I was on a spiritual quest on the one hand, and I was also trying to find a spiritual escape on the other hand. In other words, use meditation as another kind of drug. So it wasn't until I got sober in 1985, and I've been sober since then, uh, for those who are keeping score. That's 19 years uh, and counting. We like to you count, you know, in 12-step programs. Um, it was only when I, when I did get sober that uh, my practice really started to deepen and uh, become more uh, um, complete. Uh, it wasn't just a kind of sideline in my life. My spiritual life came more front and center. But when I did first get sober and, and started to work the 12 steps, I really couldn't see how a lot of the concepts and a lot of the language fit with what I understood about Buddhism. And I kind of kept them separate for a while until after about five or six years sober, they started to blend together and I, it started to become more natural for me to see them together. So the central idea, I think, that binds these two traditions is that on the one hand, the Buddha said that the cause of our suffering is clinging, and the desire that leads to grasping, holding on. And what the 12 steps are expressly designed to help us with is with the m deepest form of clinging, addiction, and the many forms that that takes. Um, ultimately, I think that when we look at the 12 steps and Buddhism, they're both also leading to a place of non-clinging, 
what we call in Buddhism enlightenment or freedom. Uh, the twelfth step talks about a spiritual awakening. And it immediately then talks about serving others. Uh, and a lot of twelve step talk is about letting go of self-centeredness. And the same uh, understanding that clinging to an idea of self is the cause of, is one of the causes, the, really the core cause of suffering. We see that in Buddhism. So ultimately, you know, I see this, I, this, uh, this is kind of giving the punchline in the beginning of the talk, but there's lots of uh, more to say about it, that, um, you know, our fundamental, our core clinging is, it could be called an addiction to self, an addiction to thought and the creation, the way we create an idea of self. It's really a clinging to something that doesn't exist. It's clinging to trying to hold together this uh, illusion, this illusory amalgam called ego or self. And indeed, if you've, you know, ever sat down to meditate, which most of us were just doing, for those of us who weren't just resting, sleeping, uh, you will notice that what can be, it can be, even when you feel quite calm and really no kind of stress or anxiety, you could be in the middle of a, you know, three-month retreat, and thoughts just keep on coming, you know, <laughs> the hits keep coming, uh, and th there's this, this core anxiety, this core fear of letting go of that, of that self. So that's w really the ultimate uh, connection that I, that I think is useful for, for exploring the steps with, with Buddhism. Um, so I want to go through and talk about the first three steps and talk about how they could work with an understanding of Buddhism. And I, I hope this will be interesting for people who uh, are not in 12-step programs. Um, it's certainly not meant to be limited in that way. On the other hand, this is Marin County, so I'm sure all of you have been to so, some kind of a meeting at one time or another, <laughs> whether it was codependence or, you know, SUVs anonymous. I mean, you know, I can't fit my Hummer in the in the garage. I've got to get a bigger garage. I'm sorry. I live in Berkeley, so you know I can be like that. You know, we're very holy over there, and not materialistic at all. Although I did see a W04 sticker the other day in Berkeley. It shocked me. To see. I didn't think those were allowed, but. Anyway, so step one, which says in the, in the original uh, book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Um, this is uh, the moment, making this admission is the initial moment of honesty that uh, one comes to uh, when one's facing alcoholism or addiction of any kind. It's uh, typically, in the 12-step literature, we talk about a moment of clarity. 
that moment when we come out of denial, when we realize that, um, you know, we've been living in a way that really didn't work, and yet we didn't, we didn't really see it. Somehow we were blind to it. So this moment of clarity in Buddhism is called right view. And this is the first aspect of the Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught as the way to freedom. Right view means that we see things as they are, that we are not deluded, that the veil is lifted, however momentarily. Um, And it means really that we can hear the truth, that our heart is open to the truth for a moment. And, of course, the truth that the Buddha taught starts with the truth of suffering. You know, he didn't start with this really inspiring la-la, you know, message. You know, just follow me and you're going to be happy, happy, happy. You know, he said, the first thing you need to do in your development of your spiritual understanding is to see clearly, to, as he said, understand the truth of suffering. And this is exactly what the first step is asking us to do, to admit our powerlessness or to admit our suffering. Before we make this admission, we're in what's called denial. So this denial is a lack of willingness to see what is true. I find it interesting that the meditation practice we teach here at Spirit Rock and that we practice together. It's called Vipassana, which is usually translated as insight, but the literal translation is to see clearly. So this moment of clarity, this right view, seeing things as they are, is really the beginning of the spiritual path. In the 12-step literature, in the, the key chapter of the, what's called the big book. It's called How It Works. And in that first paragraph of that chapter, the word honest or honesty appears three times. Very interesting. This ability to just be honest, to be truthful about what is happening. When we do Vipassana meditation, the central tool that we use is called mindfulness. Mindfulness itself is a kind of honesty. It's kind of an experiential honesty. Honesty about what is happening in this moment. Which is why, you know, I call my book One Breath at a Time. To play, to deepen the idea of one day at a time and bring it down to the moment by moment level. So, this denial... Um, There are many things that um, we live in denial about. When the Buddha talked about powerlessness, he talked about powerlessness over sickness, old age, and death. And these were three of the messengers, called the heavenly messengers, that he encountered before he began his spiritual journey. And it was for him coming out of denial about the fact that we all get sick, we all age, we all die. 
and many of us live in denial about this. Our culture, in fact, is, is designed to be in denial about, about these uh, truths. You know, the sick are hidden away in hospitals. I have a friend who has a, whose wife is a, um, has a chronic fatigue syndrome, one of those really difficult to diagnose one of those diseases that the medical community doesn't even really want to know about because they don't have a solution for it, they don't have a drug for it, so it's really not, well, it's not profitable for one thing if there's no drug to sell, but it's just, they, it's, it's difficult for them to, when they can't solve something. So, and he talks about how his wife now really can't even leave her bedroom, and he said he realized how many sick people are invisible. You know, so very often illness is invisible. There are many people walking around who you will see who look to be healthy but who actually are, are sick, you know, um, and all kinds of diseases like diabetes and cancer and, you know, multiple sclerosis, things that don't show on the surface. Um, so we can kind of go around going, oh, yeah, everybody's, everybody's fine, you know. And old age, I mean, who wants to age after all other than you know a six-year-old like my daughter wants you know can't wait to get older you know slow down um, but you know we have all kinds of ways of uh, trying to dance with old age you know from the obvious like you know cosmetic surgery to you know, the more subtle, just the way we dress to try to look a little more young and music, maybe we want to listen to more music to find out, you know, I'm a musician. And so, you know, the, I, I start to see how my taste is aging, you know, and it's like, okay, I kind of want to, you know, make my taste be younger, but, you know, it, it's just, it's there, you know, I love that music. And that's just, you know, that's a sign of age. Um, death, I mean, uh, when my mother died, I was with her in the moments uh, as she passed, and she looked dead. She looked really dead, you know. Her her cheeks were caved in, and her skin was just this, you know, uh, yellow, and uh, she was just tiny, you know. And um, she hadn't spoken or opened her eyes in in months, and. Um, and we actually told the nursing or the uh, the funeral home not to. We didn't want an open casket, but somehow that message got lost, and we went over there, and there she was, you know, looking like she was, you know, a young eighty instead of the ninety that she was when she died. You know, looking like she wasn't dead, right? I mean, how strange that that we we so don't want to look at death, that even when we know somebody is dead, we're going to try to make them look alive. It's sort of like, oh, they look like they're sleeping. Isn't that beautiful? No, you know what? They're dead. You know? Get over it. So, you know, these things are painful. You know, the, these admissions of seeing that, you know, we don't control this world. We just don't. We don't know what the moment of our death will be. We don't know, you know, really what's going to happen in our next breath. 
This is what the Buddha's teaching was. Well, you know, someone asked him, well, how can we know, you know, how long can we expect to live? And he said, well, at least till the next out-breath. You know, because the air escapes from your body, presumably, as you die. So, uh, we just don't know. So, this first step can be seen more fundamentally, this powerlessness really expands out from the idea of being powerless over a substance, seeing it in a deeper way, there, that uh, there's a core powerlessness that we all live with, which is a little scary. But that's only the first step, and it's only the first noble truth. So, you know, hold on to your blankie, and we're going to make it. <laughs> it is about the time when I'm usually reading my daughter a bedtime story. So. She's up at the yurt with the other kids getting hyper right now, I'm sure. <laughs> so, we, we acknowledge the truth, the truth of our suffering, the truth of our powerlessness. And in the 12 steps, we come to step two, which is, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, this is where Buddhists start to get a little like, now wait a second, hold it. <laughs> I came here to get away from God. Like, don't be laying that on me, okay? So I'm going to do this very gently. Don't panic. <laughs> well, this coming to believe is really seeing the possibility of freedom. And uh, in the um, Buddhist teachings, you know, the first noble truth is the seeing the suffering, the second noble truth is the cause of suffering, the clinging. And the third noble truth is seeing the possibility for freedom. So really the second step and the third noble truth, if you're keeping score, those go together. Put them in your scorecard. This is the arising of faith, which is, a, you know, a stage in our in spiritual development. Until we have some trust, some confidence in the possibility of the value of a spiritual path, we're really not going to start to do the work. I mean, after all, who would want to come into a room with a couple hundred people? Sit down, close your eyes, and do nothing for 45 minutes. I mean, huh? You know, there's got to be a reason. So, this, this, at least a kernel of faith, a grain of faith, exists at this point. And for the Buddha, this awakening happened when he saw a mendicant, a monk, for the first time, and asked, you know, who who is that man? What is he doing? Oh, he's, you know, seeking after freedom, after truth, after awakening. So, so the Buddha was seeing this literal um, inspiration, this literal possibility. Another aspect of this step that people can find troubling is that it says uh, that we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves 
can restore us to sanity. Meaning, what, I'm crazy? No. What are you saying? Well, of course, there they are. They're getting hyper, yes. It's either sleep or get hyper, so. Um, okay, for the people that are listening to this tape, we're talking about the kids that are outside. Okay. <laughs> it would be very confusing. What are they, what's that what talking about? So this idea of insanity, you know, for somebody who's in recovery from, you know, cocaine addiction or, you know, uh, alcoholism or, you know, gambling away the mortgage, um, you know, that can be, okay, I can see, yeah, I was really crazy. But for the rest of us, or you, maybe I should say, um, <laughs> it can seem a little extreme. Um, so to go back to the Buddhist teachings, the corollary that I find, the Buddha talks about these three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. Mm, delusion. There we have a key that can let us in on the idea of insanity. So delusion is, in fact, a kind of insanity, right? When you're deluded, you're just, you're out of it. You don't you really don't understand. Um, and again, we can see this delusion in our denial. Um, many of us live as though there we uh, as though there weren't such a thing as impermanence. Uh, to put it another way, in any given moment, most of us are probably thinking of things as being permanent, right, or solid. Let's say. You think that the chair you're sitting on is solid. Well, it's moving fast enough that it's, you know, the atoms are moving fast enough that it's able to create an illusion of solidness, which is holding you up. So we can say that's solid, but, um, but the truth is that everything is constantly changing. Um, for the alcoholic or addict, you know, there's the delusion that we're going to get high, and we discover, ah, th I really, this is a really nice experience. I want to do this again. And this is how addiction starts, right? This pleasurable experience that you want to repeat. But the problem is that you cannot repeat an experience. All experiences are unique in and of themselves because they only can happen in a given moment. So this idea that we can somehow, you know, set up things so that we feel a certain way. I mean, this is how we live, right? You get up in the morning, ah, oh, what makes me feel good is to have a cup of coffee. And that cup coffee kind of takes you to the, just the place you want to be. This is it. I'm in the right place. Now, and we go through the day kind of trying to control the way we feel, right? Um, trying to hold on to a good feeling and, you know, kind of trying to make that permanent. And when that dissolves, when an unpleasant thing happens, just trying to push that away. But again, just trying to create this kind of uh, solid experience. Um, so th so this, these ways that we live 
uh, in delusion are really what the Buddha's teachings are trying to lead us away from. The Buddha is trying to really get us out of delusion and to see the truth of the way things are. So how we do that begins with what we could call, well, it begins with step three. We can call this the beginning of the spiritual journey, really, the, the commitment to the spiritual journey. Step three says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Now, there are a couple words in there that I would dispense with, but I will mention them. There's God, which is a very problematic word because it implies a being. And uh, I don't think that's relevant either to the Buddhist teachings or to you know the truth as I as I see it, which is you know certainly from my viewpoint. But uh, and certainly the idea of him. Uh, and just to talk a little bit about where this language comes from, that the twelve-step uh, literature was written in the 1930s. Uh, in fact, you know, so it's coming out of a Protestant. Uh, Christian culture. Uh, in fact, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, was a stockbroker. And who's going to use a stockbroker as their spiritual teacher anyway? You know. <laughs> well, he actually turned out to have a lot of wisdom. But I do think that we need uh, fresh ways to, to understand the language. But, and I also think it's incredibly useful to address this word, God. Because in our culture, we live in a God culture, essentially. You, know, you either believe in God or you don't believe in God in our culture. right? There isn't sort of any choice, in a way. Mo- many of us are raised through in Christian, Jewish... Muslim communities where there's God. You know, they're all coming out of that Abrahamic tradition and this monotheistic idea. So how can, you know, are we going to, we can just dismiss God and just say, well, I don't believe in God, so I'm just not going to deal with that because God isn't logical, God doesn't make sense. And that's that's fine. Um I don't have a problem with that. That makes that makes as much sense as anything else. There's more sense than many things. But uh, in the twelve-step tradition, if you if you are trying to get sober, and you know you've seen what your disease did to you, you get to a point where you're pretty desperate, and you'll try anything, including God. Many of us. Um, so I'm going to start now by going back to the beginning of the step and I am going to get seriously into God but uh, just to talk about the beginning of this step says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over and this part of the step may be more important than the God part although the God part is the part that trips people up a lot but making a decision to turn our lives over to something. This is um, 
the commitment stage of the spiritual path. It's where we saw the problem in step one, the suffering, you know, the unsatisfactoriness, saw the need for something. And in the second step, we started to see that there was a possibility that was not us, not about us, but some, some greater um, reality, shall we say, greater truth that might be able to help us. And in the third step, we make a commitment to that spiritual path, to pursuing truth, to, to finding freedom. And we could say that at this moment, we are deciding to put the pursuit of truth above the pursuit of pleasure. And to try to be less reactive and more open, more accepting. Um, so this, this making a decision, this commitment, is what's called in Buddhism right intention. It's, it doesn't, which doesn't mean you get it right every time. It just means that you know what your central, where you, where you, what your central commitment is, what your central belief is, and where you want to go. And just as in meditation, in any given moment we may go off, right intention is when we remember and we come back to the breath. And we, it's, it's the guide. It's our heart's guide. So, whether we believe in God or higher power or anything else isn't really, I think, important to this journey of freedom. What I think is important is committing ourselves to do the work, whatever that is, whatever we are drawn to as a spiritual journey, and to really be willing to say, I really want to know what's true, and I'm willing to go through the difficulty involved in discovering the truth in any given moment. Which means that, in a way, we're willing to keep going back to step one over and over, to seeing our powerlessness, to seeing the suffering, to seeing the struggle, to really being honest. It also means essentially letting go, turning our will and our life over. It's letting go. And that is what this whole path is about. It's about learning to stop clinging. It's what we do moment to moment in our meditation practice, and it's what we try to do in a greater way just in our daily lives. So in Buddhism, the most traditional way of looking at this idea of turning our will and our lives over to something, to a higher power, to something greater, is called the Three Refuges. And uh, indeed, the traditional way of committing ourselves to Buddhism, to saying, sort of saying, I'm a Buddhist, we don't have baptism in, in Buddhism, but um, is to take refuge. And what do we take refuge in? Well, 
we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Now, each of those ideas, each of those words, has tremendous depth of meaning and value as a, as a guide and support. So Buddha, of course, refers to a historical person, and Buddha means awake. And that was the name that you know, Siddhartha Gautama took. Um, it was how he identified himself. When people asked him, well, you know, are you a god? Are you a saint? Who are you? Are you human? He said, I'm awake. And they called him, you know, Mr. Awake. Buddha. Buddha sounds better than Mr. Awake. But we could come up with something, though, you know. Kind of like, you know, one of the seven dwarves or something. You know, awakey. Sleepy, awakey. So, it's all very well, though, that this guy, you know, 2,500 years ago became enlightened and woke up, you know, but what good does that do us? Uh, You know, he basically said, you know, it's up to you. You've got to do the inner work. I can show you a roadmap or a path. But, um, you know, you have to do your own work. So uh, Ajahn Chah has a beautiful way of characterizing this word Buddha as the one who sees, the one who knows. And this is the quality in us that is awake. And all of us are awake to some extent or another. You know, as long as we are conscious we are capable of being mindful. So we can say that taking refuge in the Buddha is just making a commitment to be mindful. Not such a big deal, but really an important step in committing ourselves to the spiritual journey. The Dharma is the truth of the way things are. So again, this is coming out of denial out of delusion, and really looking to see what is true. So the one who is awake, the one who sees, this is what we see. You could say that these are the insights that arise when we are awake and when we practice, when we bring ourselves sincerely to practice. The Sangha, most literally, is the community. So we are a Sangha, you say. More formally, it's actually just the, uh, you know, there's sort of these concentric circles of Sangha. There's the larger lay community, then there's the monastic community. And then there's those who are enlightened. It might be a very small circle, I'm not sure. Um, but that's kind of a literal translation of Sangha. And... Um, Another way to understand it is that this is the pure heart that arises. It's really the the pure heart, pure mind, pure lifestyle, a way of living which arises when we see clearly the way things are. Uh, So living by the precepts 
is actually acting out, is living, is fulfilling Sangha. Um, it's said that an enlightened being cannot break the precepts of killing, stealing, harming with sexuality, lying. That it's just impossible for an enlightened being to do that. So when we commit ourselves to the precepts, what we are doing is trying to live like an enlightened being. In 12-step programs, we call this acting as if. Uh, you're not enlightened, but you're doing a good imitation. And that's, you know, building a foundation. So this is one way of understanding higher power, making a commitment to the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha within our own hearts. And, you know, I, I want to also say that just being here uh, together is part of our commitment to Sangha. So really, there's this way in which it expresses itself in our own hearts, but it's also is so important to have spiritual community, to, li to fulfill that, to live in that. So uh, that's one way that we have the refuges. And there's another way of, of looking at uh, the word God. And, and this comes out of uh, the great Thai master, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, who was a 20th century Thai master who was, in fact, uh, a real iconoclast. And when he was young, he was essentially ostracized from the monastic community in Thailand. Uh, and because of his radical views. But as he got older and people started to see his wisdom, he became actually one of the most revered teachers in Thailand. And one of the things that I think is so appealing about him is he, he addressed um, a lot of ideas that were not sort of traditional Buddhist ideas. And one of them was the idea of God. And he talks about God. He says that the understanding of God as a being who has feelings and who uh, is, is out there somewhere is a, is a childish understanding. And it's a misunderstanding of what God is. He says God doesn't have emotions. God doesn't get angry. God doesn't harm one person and support another. Um, and this, uh, this is the kind of God that uh, you know I find particularly uh, unacceptable. You know, a, a being that's got a personality. Because my understanding of the spiritual path is that ultimately, you know, that's the ultimate is not about the personal; it's really impersonal. So his description of God is of something. That, well, is of a power rather than of a being. It's a critical distinction, especially because, again, in our culture, we're kind of inculcated with this idea of a being. You know, we see Renaissance paintings of God, and, you know, there's Santa Claus, and, you know, all these sort of images that even if we don't believe in them, they kind of lurk back there. <laughs> so I like to go in there and... <laughs> It's kind of killing the Buddha, right? Killing God. So this Dharma God, 
Buddha Dasa calls it. And he says, the Dharma God has four qualities, has four elements, you could say. The first is nature. And that means pretty much everything, right? I mean, what is not nature exactly? Well, we could say man-made things, but if man and woman make things, we don't really make things, right? There's, the stuff is already there. We can't make it out of nothing. So nature, so all that is, kind of, is the first aspect of Dharma God, the material world, you could say. And the second is the laws of nature. <coughs> the laws of impermanence, the laws of gravity. You know, all the laws that, that rule nature. And this is really you know, what we talk about in, in Buddhism as the Dharma. So there's the nature, and then there's the laws that govern nature, which are powers greater than us, right? The law of impermanence. Can you break that law? Can you change that law? Can you do anything about it? You can either work with it or against it, but it's there. The law of karma. You know, if you uh, you know, go into the closet with a bag of Cheetos, maybe nobody will know. But the law of karma will still be in effect. You know, you'll have a stomachache if you eat the whole bag, assuming that you wouldn't go in the closet if you weren't going to eat the whole bag. You overeaters know what I'm talking about. So, so there's these laws that really, you know, in fact, the law of karma is an interesting one because I was raised Roman Catholic. I was going to say Irish Catholic, but that's not really a religion. <laughs> Although there are those who might say otherwise. And, you know, one of the things we were taught was God is everywhere and God knows everything. Now, I could not get that, you know, because I just could not figure out how God could be like, really fast, like going around everywhere. And that's because it was the misunderstanding of like a being, right? which sort of has this presence that's sort of localized in some way. That just doesn't work. Or it's, it's even if he has like a lot of tentacles. I mean, it just it can't be enough. But if you look at the law of karma, aha, fits this description precisely. It's everywhere, and it knows everything. Right? I mean, you can't get away from karma, you know? Um, so this, these laws actually are very, very much tied up with this idea of a higher power. So, okay, we've got nature, we've got the laws of nature, and now Buddha Dasa says that the third aspect of God, of the Dharma God, is the responsibility, our responsibility in relationship to these laws. Aha. So we can, as I said, either play along or you know, fight with them. And the results will be distinctly different. You know, if we are in harmony with and accepting with and working with the laws of nature, we see how our lives go. If we are struggling with it and in delusion, tremendous suffering. So nature, 
the laws of nature, our responsibility. And then the fourth aspect of this Dharma God is the fruits of being in harmony with this God, with these with these powers, or this these laws. So this is, of course, really ultimately enlightenment, but it's in a more simpler way. It's just the fruits of being in harmony, the sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness, just living your life skillfully. And we see how true this is, that if we just you know, act in a skillful way, following the precepts, being kind, being generous, patient, you know, the, the, the perfections, the paramis, all these wonderful qualities that can be developed, we see how when we develop them, how joy naturally arises in our life, that a sense of lightness and freedom comes. So this, you know, idea of a god is much more satisfying to me and uh, much more acceptable, I would even say. Now, having said all that, you know, if someone, if you're thinking about, you know, praying or a higher power, sometimes it can be hard to, like, grasp okay, what were those four different things about? And in some ways, this is just an intellectual explanation. Um, one of the teachings, core Buddhist teachings, coming out of the Korean Zen tradition, can make this whole search quite simple. And that is, don't know. Don't know. God? No God? Higher power? Huh? I don't know. All I know is I'm here now, this present moment. I'm experiencing, I'm breathing. You know, um, many people find that just mindfulness itself, which is a way of saying Buddha, but mindfulness itself, just presence. You know, one of the descriptions, one of the ways of describing God is divine presence. You could take away the divine because presence is divine. So that's redundant. Just to be present. This is enough. This this is higher power enough. So exploring these ideas for me bring alive both the Dharma and the Twelve Steps and um, can really, I think, help us to guide ourselves, because that's the work that has to be done. You know, we come to a class, and maybe there's a meditation instruction or a talk, and those words don't do anything. They come, you know, they bounce against our eardrums, but it's up to us. You know, to live this this practice, to walk this path. But I think it's very helpful at times to have some guideposts along the way, some indicators of, you know, yes, turn left here, or lean right there, you know, just to have some sense of how this all works and what might be useful at a certain point. So I offer these teachings to you. These are the 
this teaching on the first three steps. Of course, um, there's nine others that I elucidate just as articulately <laughs> in my book. Um, but uh, I want to leave some time tonight for questions. Um, well, yes. And actually, we have a microphone. It would be helpful to the people who are <coughs> listening on the tape to, uh, if you would be willing to use that. Thank you. Yes, hi. Is the, if the sense of self is an illusion, uh, what do you think goes, on, goes forward when someone dies? Don't know. I, I thought that'd be the answer. Uh, you know, I really, I really don't. I, you know, I was, I'm just reading, um, I have it in my bag, the, the book, uh, A Cave in the Snow, about this Tibetan, well, she's an English woman who uh, practices Tibetan Buddhism, and she spent 12 years in a cave meditating. And she's just a devout and believed from early in her life in reincarnation and really had a lot of experiences of uh, out-of-body experiences and, uh, you know, kind of connecting with, with uh, other beings in different, you know, forms. And, and I believe her, and I haven't had that experience. So I, I don't really like to, you know, talk out of someone else's experience. Um, there are descriptions, you know, like lighting the, I don't know if you've heard the one that it's like you have a candle, one's lit and the other one isn't lit. And the, this one, as this one dies, you light the other one. And this is the reincarnation, right? So, and this goes out. So what, what was carried on? But it's really a don't know because whatever it is, it isn't in a physical form, and we haven't been able to detect much. <laughs> I mean, scientists can't even figure out what consciousness is, you know. Just that really shows <laughs> a lot to me, you know, about the unknowability. You don't think that consciousness goes forward? I don't know what consciousness is. Up, I guess. Well, in the you know, if you look at the dependent origination, consciousness does come after materiality, after body. So, yeah, but it's too theoretical for me. You know, I, I'm not the right person to ask. Okay. I'd go ask one of those bhikkhus. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. There's. Okay, sure. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for your insights. One difficulty I have, and this may be a, a stage, I don't know, but uh, an aspect of higher power that seems really important to me that you didn't mention is the aspect of help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. And uh, in Buddhism, I have looked for symbols that I could take uh, and, in a sense, pray to, although not prayer in the mm -hmm. 
traditional Christian sense, but ask for help. And so I've taken the symbol of Guan Yin mm -hmm. recently. Uh, but that's a that there is help mm -hmm. outside of my small being is very important for my sobriety. Yeah, I agree. And and I've uh, you know kind of. Uh, looked at that. Uh, I have definitely looked at that, and and um, it's actually quite simple the way I see it. Uh, the Buddha Das's fourth aspect of God, we could say, is is that it's the fruits of being in harmony, right, with the laws of nature. Again, that's a little theoretical. The other day I had an experience, though, where it really hit me. I was feeling some uh, uncomfortable emotion, and I uh, turned my mind toward loving-kindness meditation, which is the, sort of the closest thing to a Buddhist prayer that we have around here, where we kind of, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, you know. And, but just as I engaged with it, I just came into a moment of mindfulness. And I felt my heart opening and softening and just being present. And I felt the emotion, but the vulnerability. But I also felt how mindfulness itself has a caring quality. We don't so much talk about that. But it is. Mindfulness, you know, you don't... Loving kindness is a beautiful practice, but it's almost unnecessary. And some some people, Ajahn Amaro talks about this, that for him, mindfulness itself just opens into the heart opening, into that softness, into that acceptance, right? And acceptance is another form of caring, right? And it's accepting ourselves, accepting this feeling and caring for ourselves, just that soft, caring heart. So I see that as a quality of mindfulness itself. And, and it's, it requires nurturing the mindfulness, letting the mindfulness grow to where it can do that. So again, it's not, it's not so much, um, you know, the, pr the kind of prayer that, you know, the childish prayer, which is, God, please fix me, you know, is never going to, I mean, even the 12 steps say not to pray in that way. They say praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. But it doesn't, it doesn't say, you know, pray for the new car. It says pray, it's what it's saying is pray to be in harmony, right? And when we're in harmony, that's when the mindfulness, you know, has this caring quality. I hope that works for you in some way. There was someone right here who had her hand up before you. Hi, thank you. Um, you said about uh, karma. I was curious, is it is it kind of a cause and effect? Kind of? Yeah. Exactly. I mean... The law of karma is the law of cause and effect, essentially. Then is it judgmental? Yes. What? Is it judgmental? Is it judgmental? That's a good question. Hmm. Because if you say, oh, you do these bad things in your life, 
maybe nothing happens to you in this life, but uh -huh. in the next turn of the wheel, look out. Yeah. But maybe you'll just be a rich man. <laughs> well, first of all, the Buddha said that we cannot unravel karma. Like, how did I arrive up here sitting on this cushion? Well, let me see. I drove here, and then there was all the years of meditation, and then there was... But, you know, it's, he said basically that you would drive yourself crazy if you tried to figure it out. And he, he said, there's a law of cause and effect. This is what you need to know, right? The, his teaching about the handful of leaves, he says, you know, it, how, which is more, the leaves in the forest or the leaves in my hand? Well, the leaves in the forest, yeah. That's how much I know. This is all I'm teaching you, because that's all you need to know to be free. So, not to get too into trying to figure it all out. What's important is that there's a law of cause and effect. And I believe that because I've seen enough of the results, right? I've seen enough of it work. Now, I can't figure it out in every, like, oh, that person who got away with killing their you know, blah, 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 and, you know, did Scott Peterson do it or not? What if he doesn't go to jail? You know, O.J., I mean, he's playing golf down in Florida. You know, I can't, that's not my job. My job is to be free in my own heart and to find a way to be, to be free. And so, cause and effect, precepts, mindfulness, you know, the tools. That's what the Buddha was interested in, not the theory behind it. So the overlay is of judgmentalness is our own. Well, when people if, say, "Well, they'll get what comes to them." Yeah, I, sure. <laughs> no, but it isn't. You know, the thing is that cause and effect. Uh, what's painful for one person isn't painful for someone else. You know, um, and you know, at different stages in our lives, things that weren't painful. Like, you know, I ran around getting loaded for years, you know, and being in that craving, I didn't notice how painful it was because I wasn't aware of it. So people can be suffering and not know they're suffering. So, you know, to say, uh, it, it's, the value judgment is something we place on pain and suffering. It's just cause and effect. This leads to this. What you call this that's up to you. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. So that woman really looks anxious in the back. And, and then we'll get you in the front here. Hi. I don't mean to be disrespectful with this Oh, question. go ahead. Thank you. I've been, um, I have been clean sober for 19 years, and I've gone on a, a different spiritual path in the 12-step program. And it just, it gives me kind of sense, chills down my spine, the um, talk. I just kind of feel like it's um, the talk. Meaning what? You mean the twelve-step talk or my talk? Your talk. Oh. Okay. Because I that just feel like it's kind of. But go ahead. Messing. I feel like it's kind of messing with the solution. I'm messing with the solution. Not that you are. Not that you are messing with the solution, but that what you're um, proposing is kind of the solution. There's a twelve-step program that's a solution, and it's just somehow making it different with your interpretation. That's just what I, I just wonder what you have to say to that. I don't understand. There's a 12-step program. Right. 
and what your your. Um, but you, you said that you didn't use a twelve-step program, right? I, I did for many years. Oh, okay. And so I just kind of feel like the two combined, uh -huh. it's like it's kind of adding on to the twelve-step program what you are doing, and just what you have to say about that. Well, what you'd have to say to that, anyhow. What what I think that I'm doing is actually something that's been done in all spiritual traditions, which is called commentary. So that over time, uh, as, because a lot of what I'm addressing is language, although it's, you know, I, I frame it in, in different ways, but I think the core of it is, is very much about language. Um, over time, the language of every spiritual tradition ages, and as people, as language evolves, the the core language, the original language, starts to be starts to either lose its power for people because those words don't really mean anything to them anymore, or um, it becomes confusing. People just don't even know how to understand it. I don't know if you've ever read any of the early Buddhist teachings, but the fact that Jack Cornfield can interpret them in the way he does is brilliant, and what he does is commentary. And this is, commentaries have been done on the Buddhist teachings for thousands of years. Just a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha, people started writing commentaries. So that's what I see my role as. I absolutely, uh, you know, set out, and one of my clearest intentions was to not rewrite the 12 steps. You know, I have the 12 steps in their original form in my book. And what I'm interested in is exploring what the meaning of those steps is. You know, I'm not saying, turn my will and my life over to the power of Buddha, as I understood him. You know, no, just keep it the way it is. And, you know, but, I, but at the same time, I'm not going to accept someone else's understanding of God. You know, what's, it's, that's of no use to me. I have to understand God for myself. And I have seen a lot of people, particularly in Buddhist circles, struggle with this language. And so... The reason I wanted to do a commentary was because I wanted to help people not to suffer in that way. Thank you. Yeah. So the woman in the front, and then we need to be, we need to go. Uh, right, he, right here. She had her hand up. Wow. I'm curious, um, on the Dharma, just as our experiences are different, each of us has a slightly different perspective mm -hmm. for many and varied reasons. Right then would our dharmas be different? <laughs> Sneaky. Actually, it's 9.15 now, so... <laughs> oh, I wanted you to be mindful. Um, this is... Um, this is why we practice, to see clearly. There is relative truth, and mostly what we experience and are aware of is relative truth. And that's the truth that we all can see differently. You know, um, I saw a car accident, you know, the car was white. No, it was cream. No, it was beige. You know, everybody has their own understanding. Um, 
the Dharma is not uh, relative in that way. The truth of the way things are. Um, so we're not really talking about um, truth on that relative level. We're not really talking about the, you know, shades of color or the, is it cold or is it hot? You know, we're talking really about seeing impermanence, seeing it deeper and deeper and deeper, seeing no self, seeing suffering, seeing these truths deeper and deeper. So that's really what it's about. Okay? So thank you all for listening, for participating tonight. Let's take a minute to just sit. So just breathing into your heart center, relaxing back into your body. And think for a moment of someone who's very dear to you. Someone who it's easy to love. And just let their image come to mind or a sense of their presence. Letting yourself be filled with the love that comes to your heart when you think of this beloved person. And now offering yourself the same loving kindness you feel for your beloved. Letting that loving kindness fill your heart, fill it to overflowing. Letting that loving kindness flow outward into this room, touching all the beings in this room, each heart filled to overflowing. A wave of loving-kindness spreading outward over the land, touching all the beings nearby, the animals, birds, humans, insects, spreading outward to the sea and across the land. Loving-kindness surrounding the planet, a great wave of love pouring from this room, from our hearts, around the planet, touching all beings and all things. Letting this great wave of loving-kindness spread outward into the universe. outwards and unbounded. So that the entire universe 
is lit with your loving kindness. The warmth and openness of your heart filling the universe. We dedicate the merit of our efforts tonight to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.